0: Hi there, and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Patients with chronic right ventricular failure who are admitted to the ICU present a special array of challenges to the intensivist. Dr. Kavitha Mattia is a cardiologist at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. She completed a PhD in left ventricular assist devices and has completed several clinical fellowships in the UK since. Among her many interests is the management of patients with severe right ventricular failure. She joins me today to describe the presentation, challenges and management of such patients in the ICU. Kavitha, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much for the invitation.
0: Kavitha, when uh, patients who have background pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure present to hospital and end up in ICU, what are the types of problems that bring them into hospital?
1: So um, basically, a, a, a wide range of things could could occur. So various scenarios, if they've got known, diagnosed pulmonary hypertension, most commonly the precipitants could be uh, infections, arrhythmias, both atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, uh, if they've got known underlying right ventricular impairment, um, you know any change to their fluid status, so if they've not been adherent, for example, to their fluid restrictions, or anything that upsets that balance could cause a decompensated state. If they are not known to have underlying pulmonary hypertension and it's a first presentation, most commonly you would encounter a scenario where they might have had an acute pulmonary embolism, for example, uh, you know, requiring with significant RV impairment requiring hemodynamic support. So those, I guess, are the sorts of patients you would see in the intensive care setting. Now, the other sort of scenario that you know, people encounter in ICU, not to forget that pulmonary hypertension can also be contributed by um, left ventricular impairment so that's your group two or secondary pulmonary hypertension and and probably uh, the largest group you know of of patients with pulmonary hypertension so when you've got significant biventricular impairment and secondary pulmonary hypertension again anything that rattles that balance would would you know would would end up that patient being in in the intensive care unit for both hemodynamic mechanical or ventilatory support
0: so you mentioned there that one of the most common causes is left ventricular failure what are the common causes that we might see of isolated pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure in in this setting
1: um so with left ventricular failure so w- when we have uh i uh, it, so it's not necessarily isolated ventricular failure so in this setting you've got biventricular failure and concurrent pulmonary hypertension so any cause of left ventricular uh, failure, So an uh, ischemic cardiomyopathy uh, with significant systolic impairment, uh, valvular, ha- car- uh, valvular causes of a left-sided uh, cardiomyopathy, uh, you know, and often they have what we term non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy, and that range is, you know, that list is, is, is quite long. Uh, it includes a viral, idiopathic, you know, all sorts of forms, you know, familial DCM, restrictive cardiomyopathy, is another form that often involves the right ventricle. So the myopathy affects, in addition, the right ventricle. So you may not have systolic impairment, but you have a stiff heart or diastolic impairment. Normally, with just diastolic heart failure, so you've, if you've got normal systolic uh, uh, function with just a stiff heart, you don't necessarily end up in the ICU setting. So these patients tend not to be quite as sick. And even if they get, you know, flash pulmonary edema, you know, they they turn around quite rapidly just with, you know, CCU-based therapy. Um, And and often, uh, even with severe biventricular impairment, you can get significant pulmonary pressures. So with elevated transpulmonary gradients, not necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily have an additional cause for the pulmonary hypertension apart from severe biventricular failure. Um, and with time with uh, reverse remodeling strategies and or uh, mechanical uh, therapies you know they they tend to improve.
0: For patients who present with um, uh, primary pulmonary hypertension in the Australian setting what sort of uh, causes would you commonly see? So
1: as you know, the you know the primary pulmonary hypertension or group one uh, disease. So there's again uh, you know a, a quite a, a lengthy list. So you've got your in, idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, you've got your heritable uh, pulmonary hypertension, you've got it due to you know exotic infections, HIV, schistosomiasis, etc. And then you get the rarer causes, which you know you 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 ought to know about, even if you don't see them commonly because you think about it. Uh, these include the groups such as pulmonary veno occlusive disease or pulmonary capillary hemangiomatosis. And these patients can be very, very sick, often requiring ICU support. Uh, if uh, uh sorry about that. Uh, if um if, if, you know, as I mentioned, if any of those things happen, the infection, the, the arrhythmias, et cetera, uh, the I would like to mention, you know, the group, the pulmonary veno-occlusive disease and the pulmonary capillary hemangiomatosis as, as a specific problem because the traditional um, Uh, pulmonary vasodilated therapies may not necessarily work and they might impose harm so in this group of patients they when uh, therapies are not readily available you know and they become sick they end up in ICU uh, you know commonly yeah.
0: What are the, um, the key principles of managing somebody who has decompensated right ventricular failure in the setting of pulmonary hypertension?
1: So, um, you know, we, we go with really a stepwise approach, uh, not necessarily stepwise, but, you know, a few things that you you, you just do. It's, it's standard treatment, really, what you normally do in the intensive care unit. So, firstly, you identify triggers for their decompensated state. So, you know, infection, arrhythmias, uh, volume, overload, and you try and correct those things, uh, parameters, atrial ventricular arrhythmias, obviously, with either cardioversion or uh, antiarrhythmic therapy infections, you know, identify the source and treat it. Uh, the fluid volume state. If you're not winning just with diuretics alone, you may have to put them on, you know, ultra hemofiltra- uh, ultrafiltration, or CVVHD, just to optimize the volume status. And 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 sometimes I think it's better to to do that early rather than wait when they've got any other end organ dysfunction, and then you you get get quite stuck really when their kidneys, liver, etc. start failing. So sometimes it's better to bite the bullet and and you know get that that volume status optimized early And then, of course, if you're still struggling with with significant RV impairment, despite correcting those those identified reversible factors, you want to optimize that pulmonary hypertension and the the afterload. So you you would consider pulmonary vasodilator therapy in the ICU. You know, you can use inhaled nitric oxide, intravenous evoprostenol, inhaled alioprost as measures, and even... And, and in the setting of it being uh, secondary to left ventricular impairment, I find intravenous GTN particularly helpful in this setting. Obviously, with you might need some vasopressor support if their blood pressure doesn't tolerate it. Um, and essentially, those are the, the basic principles of managing someone with significant RV impairment uh, with concurrent pulmonary hypertension.
0: Um, there's obviously an interplay between the right ventricle and the left ventricle that is of concern in this situation. Um, one of the challenges is getting the volume status right, the right amount of preload for the right ventricle to enable forward flow, with the, uh, the opposing factor of having left, uh, sorry, septal deviation into the, the left ventricle compromising left ventricular function. How do you get that balance right in the clinical setting?
1: So that's a very good point, and often we forget about the, you know, the the contribution or or the um, the uh, interplay between the ventricles. So the interventricular dependence or interdependencies is. is pivotal, insignificant RV impairment and significant pulmonary hypertension. um, I'd like to mention uh, it it is actually a cause of left ventricular uh, dysfunction in the setting. It elevates LV pressures in addition. So when you have severe pulmonary hypertension, severe RV impairment, the right ventricle is dilated. It squishes your left ventricle. That causes actually an elevation of your wedge pressure and often even if you don't have um, intrinsic lv impairment or even if you don't have any sky in the left ventricle when we do right heart catheter studies you often find that the wedge pressure is somewhat partially elevated so again, to get the balance right, you know, we we vasodilate. So you want to treat the afterload. So if they're not in a decompensated state, uh, depending on the etiology of the pulmonary hypertension. So group one, you've got pulmonary vasodilators that you use. So you get have the three main classes: the ERAs, the nitric oxide pathway, the PDE five uh, pathway. So and and there is lots of evidence now, as we know, to use triple combination therapy normally you you start double combination therapy upfront and you add your third agent quite rapidly now then of course if if the pulmonary hypertension is secondary to causes such as uh, chronic thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension of course there are then options depending on whether or not they might be candidates for balloon uh, pulmonary angioplasty or uh, pulmonary endarterectomy and again the, this is the group of patients that you might encounter in the intensive care unit, post-BPA, where they do need a little bit of support of their RV, and post-pulmonary endarterectomy, obviously that's surgery, so they end up in ICU in any case. Uh, So, yes, so uh, to to answer your question in short, uh, the interventricular dependence, how to maintain the balance, is to vasodilate the pulmonary circulation and ensure that their fluid or volume status is optimised. Uh, if they're decompensated in order to have that preload going to your left LV to improve your cardiac output, you may end up using that uh, inotropes in addition. So dobutamine is something we commonly use both in CCU and even in the ICU.
0: Uh, for a ventilated patient who has severe pulmonary hypertension, and you are now starting to use pulmonary vasodilators and some of these other strategies, how do you monitor the effectiveness of your therapy? Is there a um, a measurement that is can be performed, or is it a clinical status type uh, approach?
1: I think I think in it depends on the intensive care unit. I guess we, um, you know, our unit uses quite. We use you know invasive direct invasive monitoring with swan gans catheterization so you know often uh, i know it's quite a contentious topic in in terms of you know leaving a swan in and the duration of leaving the swan in etc but you know obviously that's going to be extremely helpful in terms of you get direct visual, visualization of what your numbers are and you know quite rapidly if your pa pressure is improving with uh with your therapy so your you know your nitric oxide therapy, for example, or your IV epoprostenol, et cetera. So, and of course, then you assess things clinically, you know, and and that could be you know a wide range of things, including improvement of your end organ function and All the various, you know, modalities you use to to assess response of ventilatory response. I I think, you know, and the other thing that I'll I'll mention is, you know, again, I come back to uh, the topic of um, pulmonary hypertension in the setting of left heart disease, uh, because I'm a cardiologist. Um, but but you know we we have you know for example uh just just improving left-sided hemodynamics i'll, I'll give you a, a case we we had a patient uh, last week who had i uh, did his right heart catheter study uh he had an lvef of five percent i'm not kidding uh he was young so quite uh, has this compensatory response until of course they suddenly crash and decompensate his wedge pressure was 39 normal being 12, as you know. Uh, His mean PA pressure was 60 millimeters of mercury um, and his right atrial pressure was 26 at the time of right heart catheter study. Um, And he was, you know, despite putting him on diuretics and being on dobutamine, he was failing that with with his renal function going off and he was breathless. We ended up putting a left-sided impeller. So impeller, uh, not the right-sided impeller, left-sided impeller, 5.0. And within hours of the impeller going in, uh, we had a Swan in his PA pressure halved almost, you know, to 40. So just improving your left ventricular hemodynamics, you're improving that secondary pulmonary hypertension state. And your RV, his RA pressure is not not you know before even you know instituting aggressive diuretic management, even his RA pressure improved just by offloading the left ventricle. So, yeah.
0: Now, you mentioned mechanical devices there. What are the rescue therapies? So let's say we've got this ventilated uh, patient with severe pulmonary hypertension and they're continuing to fail end organ dysfunction, et cetera, despite appropriate ventilator management and the institution of inotropes and pulmonary vasodilators. What are the options that we have in terms of rescue therapies?
1: So again, when you have when you are in a situation with you know pulmonary hypertension RV impairment, really the go to would be VA ECMO essentially. That's readily I wouldn't say readily accessible, but you know many tertiary centers now can institute VA ECMO therapy. Uh, Overseas, you have, you know, other modalities such as PA Novelang device, which is not readily available here in Australia, but VA ECMO is cheap. You know, lots of units do have access to VA ECMO or at the very least, you have an ECMO retrieval service. So, you know, if you give them the heads up, that's something that you do. And of course, then, you know, if all else fails um, and if they're otherwise a suitable candidate for Lung transplantation, you know, you support them on VA ECMO, and you you try and get them an organ, uh, or you know, you, you you try and at least work them up rapidly to see if they would be someone who would benefit from lung transplant. Now, I would like to mention here. So, you know, many people would ask, you know, if you've got significant pulmonary hypertension and RV impairment, would a lung? I mean, your RV has failed. Would they be okay just with a lung transplant? And the answer, actually. is, Yes, unless they have got concurrent significant congenital heart disease with structural cardiac abnormalities, we 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 often get we do we don't need a heart lung transplant. Essentially, you you transplant their lungs, their RV with time. You may need to support them in the immediate post doctoral period with ECMO again. Uh, however, the RV does reverse remodel within three months. You 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 know you you get. You recovery of the right ventricle and so you all you need is a good pair of lungs and the RV with time does reverse remodel.
0: A moment ago you mentioned the impeller devices both right and left-sided can you tell us about those devices how they work and what the potential advantages are?
1: So the impeller device uh, is essentially, it's a axial uh, pump uh, that is capable of essentially providing partial, if not full cardiac output. So the impeller, the impeller RP is a device that you know, sits in the pulmonary artery and, and it's used for patients with isolated right ventricular failure. Now, I would like to say that you know a word of caution in patients with uh, primary pulmonary hypertension and rv impairment because with the impeller you're actually increasing the rv afterload so you know you 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 may struggle a little bit in this setting unless you have concurrence you know you use uh, heavy-duty pulmonary vasodilator therapy. Now, one role for the impeller RP would be in a setting of patients with severe pulmonary hypertension in the setting of left heart disease. Um, You put a durable left ventricular assist device in, Uh, instead of, uh, and their RV is impaired and maybe not so bad that they need a biventricular device. So we can implant a durable LVAD in the RV position if if it's really significantly impaired. But often you have a setting where you just need temporary RV support and we have, um, you know, in some centers overseas primarily, they do use the impeller RP in the setting as a temporary RV RV support, we tend to use more venopulmonary arterial ECMO support in the short term to support the right ventricle. Uh, now, the impeller, the impeller 5.0, 2.5, is again a micro axial pump that is uh, implanted uh, uh uh, uh, you know, retrograde through the aortic valve, so the pump sits in your left ventricle, and again, it's capable of, of of generating you know up to five liters per minute of cardiac output. It's a temporary device, so you you don't um, have it for more than fourteen days at a time. You know, there are risks involved with the device, obviously infection, hemolysis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so you know, if they if they start not showing signs of recovery or imp- improved hemodynamics within the 14-day mark, leaving it for longer than that, you do start running into problem. Now, these devices can also be used as a bridge to decision or transplant. And in fact, there is quite an elegant series, I can't remember, I think a couple of years ago, published by the Spanish Group, where they, they, do, they, they have quite robust heart transplantation programs and they use these devices as a bridge to transplant. So before going even to the durable device, they they put these impellers in, you know, they list these patients and they get them organs and uh, mitigating the need to to have these patients on durable therapy.
0: Kavitha, finally, what is the outcome for patients who do end up in the ICU on a ventilator with severe right ventricular failure in the setting of pulmonary hypertension? How do they do? Um, And what in terms of discussing options with families what should we know about these patients and their outcomes
1: yeah I guess pulmonary hypertension as you know it's um, you know it's uh, yeah it, it's a tricky tricky disease process and uh, you know patients can when they end up in the ICU setting you know if you're depending on the series that you look you know mortality can be quite high so in-hospital mortality uh, for patients uh, with severe pulmonary hypertension and concurrent RV impairment who end up in the ICU uh, can be up to forty-eight percent. You know, thirty-five to forty-eight percent, depending on on the series. So, I think early on, if if they show signs of not improving within the first few days of instituting, you know, either mechanical therapy or vasodilator therapy. I think it is, uh, you know, it, it's not unreasonable to inform the family early of, you know, what the options are and, and what the trajectory, that the expected outcomes and trajectories are so that, you know, they're not left in limbo pretty much. Um, again, uh, depending on, you know, accessibility to um advanced mechanical uh, support strategies and or transplantation, Uh, the outcomes may may vary a little. However, you know, uh, in essence, mortality is not low in this group of patients.
0: Are there any factors that might influence that discussion? For example, uh, factors that might be negatively prognostic in particular?
1: I would say if they have multi-organ uh, dysfunction so involvement of more than one or two organs if you've got renal impairment and liver impairment if you know if they are incubated and they are showing signs of neurological impairment those are very poor prognostic markers and it would be worthwhile having earlier discussions if they are otherwise not candidates for advanced therapies such as, transplantation and you see failing medical therapy then you know you're sometimes prolonging the inevitable uh, and that's when I would start having earlier discussions so if you don't necessarily have a bailout strategy of either transplant essentially uh, then you know those discussions have to be made sooner rather than later.
0: Kavita thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: No my pleasure thank you.
0: Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for MyOSLA wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.